You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast featuring some of Indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state, our communities, and us. Join us as we discuss their imprint on our history. Leaders and Legends is brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated, your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations, media relations, public outreach, crisis communications, and digital photography. My name is Robert Bain, Principal of Veteran Strategies, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and Communications Director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. You're listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, the Crown Plaza at Union Station, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. We are here with someone who, when I told other people we were coming to talk to her, to Sally Rowland, the immediate reaction was, oh my God, she's wonderful. Oh my God, she's wonderful. And that came from people like Greg Ballard and P.E. McAllister and others. And we are very honored to have Sally Rowland on the podcast today. Thank Thank you, Sally. Well, thank you very much. I am joined today by my co-host, the wonderful Danielle Shockey, (laughs) who is preparing as we speak for questions. And at this point, I should say, take it away. Oh, my goodness gracious. Thanks. Thank you. And thank you, Sally, for letting us come into your home and talk to you today. So just to give our listeners of Leaders and Legends some context, talk about where you grew up, um, college, career, just kind of your story, if you don't mind. Okay. Well, I'm a Marylander. I was born and raised in Baltimore, Maryland. My parents lived in the East for about 18 years, which is where I came along. And then they moved back to Indiana when I was about out of high school. Terrible time to move. (laughs) Three different high schools, not good. At any rate, that's how we ended up back in Indiana. Tell you the truth, one of the groups that I got acquainted with were the Girl Scouts. And um, a couple of those were a year ahead of me. They'd gone off to IU, and they invited me down for a weekend. I took a look at the place and said, but this is it. So I went to IU. Um, I had a mother who was a real jewel. Um, um, I graduated from college in 1954, so high school in 1950. And that was the point in time when women, for the most part, were teachers or nurses or secretaries. I couldn't type. And (laughs) nuns, yeah, I didn't think about that. And my mother said, Sally, we've got to figure out what you can do for a living where a woman can make a decent salary so you get off in the right direction. And I remember going through the Baltimore Sun classified ads, seeing what jobs were open and whatnot, and it appeared that one of them would be to go into being a buyer for a department store. That women stood stood a pretty good chance of that position. It looked like it paid pretty well. So that's what my major was in college. They called it textile merchandising at IU. But that's where I was headed, and I even was had an internship at Wolf and Dessauer, which was the department store in Fort Wayne, which is where my folks lived. And um, I enjoyed it. But then at the last minute, 
See, I minored in interior design, which is all you could do at IU. So I'm a graduate of the business school with a minor in interiors. And um, when I was about to accept the position in Fort Wayne, my interior design prof indicated that there had been a gentleman in from Indianapolis, his name John Ober, who owned an office furniture firm, and they were looking for somebody to do color coordination for offices. And I'm going, who ever heard of that? I mean, you know, truly. <laughs> Aren't they just all steel gray back then? They were. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so I was, you know, that old right place at the right time. Um, I didn't know what in the world they were talking about, but I went up for an interview and was just overwhelmed at what I saw in their showroom, which was... <clears throat> a program that was out of Grand Rapids, Michigan, for Steelcase and Stowe Davis dealers to sell executive office furniture. And it was beautifully done. And I, and I just, I, could, I had to give it a try. And I have to tell you that Indianapolis was the last place <laughs> I wanted to work because I had been up here and it was just so dull. And I purposely hadn't taken any compared interviews to, compared to Fort Wayne. <laughs> <laughs> Fort Wayne was ahead of Indianapolis at the time, believe it or not. So anyway, that's how I got to Indianapolis, and the position, of course, grew, and so did the company. And I was with them for ten years. When I decided, <clears throat> well, my first son was born for one thing, Eric. And then Jason followed him about three years later, two and a half years later. And I didn't want to go back to business furniture company, partly because when you're a, a dealer, you have to maintain a certain volume of business in order to maintain those dealerships. So for every client that came in, you had to show them certain lines of furniture, some of which would, would, would be fine. But as it became evident to me, and we by that time, I think we had about five people in the department. There are a lot of people that the solution wasn't even to buy anything. It was to redesign what they had and repurpose what they had. And so I felt that there was a bit of a conflict of interest there, that you were selling just what you could get rather than not necessarily what the client needed. So I started the firm with the idea that we were selling good design, we were not selling product, which is still the way the firm is, which is 50 years old now. <laughs> so that was kind of a, an entirely new direction to go, where basically we were paid for our knowledge and our ability, and we weren't paid for product in the way of furniture. So when you say you started, you just for our listeners, you started Roland Design. That's right. And what year did you start this as a, a, I'm guessing, much of a trailblazer? It's a word that's used to describe you. Well, legally, the firm was established in 1968. When I, you know, another thing that's important, I had a husband who was so supportive, and that's... That's not typical of my generation either, uh, because <clears throat> I was working initially out of the house, and then as my boys came along, I I was having problems. I can't I can't close the door in their face. 
So I either had to get out of the house and establish an office where I could have the right kind of care for them or let it go. And my husband said, don't let it go. Go after it. So that's very special to have some. What did he do? He's an architect, but for a different firm, and we never were in the same firm together. So you, when you took your location, because you also are quite um, a historian, or I guess I would say preservationist, would that be the right yeah, phrase? Sure. Mm-hmm. So when you first took your firm, you went, is Lockerbie Square where you went for the first no, location? No, initially we were in a building on College Avenue. Okay. And uh, <clears throat> about the 4800 block or something. It was a couple of buildings that had been put together. Mm-hmm. And we were there for a few years. My original partner in business was Bill Hawkins, who was an industrial design graduate from the University of Cincinnati. Fabulous talent. Could do all kinds of things I couldn't do. And so the next place we went was to a building we bought on East 38th Street, so it was handy for him. <laughs> you know, you got to do things like that. And um, then... Um, the next move was downtown to Lockerbie Square. <clears throat> and we were the first firm to take a historic building and redesign it and establish it for commercial purposes. That's hard to believe, isn't it? But we were. So uh, that was in Lockerbie, and we stayed there until we outgrew it and bought another one in Lockerbie which we just recently sold, and the company is now over on Capital and is uh, doing very nicely without me, (laughs) I'm glad to say. (laughs) So describe downtown in 1960. What was downtown Indianapolis like? You already mentioned you didn't want to live here or work here. It was just nothing. I mean, there was nothing going on. It was just... um, I must say that one of the things that that the company that I worked for, which was Business Furniture Company, and that we individually did after that, was to try and make the town better. So <clears throat> one of the things that Business Furniture Company did, which was a wonderful event, was they com- they um, collaborated with what was Heron Art Museum there. It's now Heron High School, but it was an art museum then, to bring Frank Lloyd Wright to town. Now, Frank Lloyd Wright had recently designed the Johnson Wax building. And Steelcase, which was one of the dealers that uh, Business Furniture Company represented, built the furniture for that. And, of course, it was bizarre furniture. You know, he had three three legs on the chairs. They were all casters. People kept falling out of them. (laughs) And his remark was, if they fall out of them often enough, They'll figure out how to stay. <laughs> the typical Frank Lloyd Wright. So it was a real thrill to get to um, hear him speak and bring him to town, and that was a big deal. Uh, but you know, the only way in from the airport was on West Washington Street. So you can just imagine <laughs> how thrilled he was with what he saw. but they uh, were taking him around. At that point in time, the World War Memorial still had the two churches on the corner. The Baptist Church was one, Second Presence on the other. 
And they explained to Mr. Wright that those two churches would be removed, whereupon he said, keep the churches and remove the memorial. You know, just the kind of thing that you (laughs) expected to say. But at any rate, he was very um, cordial. He had a sparkle in his eye. You know, he he was expected to behave, I think, at that point a certain way. But frankly, it was very shortly before his death. And he spoke extemporaneously before the group at Heron and then came for a reception at Business Furniture Company. He had his furniture and his fabrics and everything there. So that was maybe an example of an effort to do something for Indianapolis and uh, and certainly, the group under Hudnut and um, the movers and shakers there, who came up with the brilliant idea of the of the amateur sports capital, and you know, I was just seeing a picture the other day when we had the Pan Am games. I I think that that's the first time a lot of people have ever been downtown that live in this town, and it was sensational. Do you ever remember a guy by the name of um, Larry Conrad? Did you ever hear that name? Larry Conrad helped to put a lot of that on. He was just full of ideas. The guy was just marvelous, and he died too young. But he was very much in charge with that. When he said, we're going to let white doves go off, we go, yeah, Larry, (laughs) sure. (laughs) We've had a lot of folks... Bill Benner was a podcast guest. Uh, Mark Miles yeah. has been a podcast guest. And they have both mentioned the Pan Am Games as a watershed event. Uh, like it kind of gets lost because of the Colts or the Pacers or the Domes or the Super Bowl or whatever. But uh, Ted Bohm's going to come on the podcast. Good. Who uh, was CEO of the Pan Am Games. And it that's really what I want to talk to him about. Yeah. That people don't realize what a, that that showcased Indianapolis to the world for the first time that didn't involve the 500. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it was sensational. It was fun to be a part of it. And honestly, I think people began to think maybe there was something to this town. You know, they were proud of what was going on. You mentioned the Hudnut folks, and then let's maybe go back in administration. And Richard Luger had some phenomenal talent working for him when he was mayor and then obviously was built upon by subsequent mayors. But was there a sense in 67 uh, Luger wins his first term and obviously not immediately, but shortly thereafter he becomes mayor that, okay, things are going to change or they are changing. Do you remember that time? Not as well as I should probably. Um, Obviously uh, the Unigov thing, which he, put in place was huge and and made a big difference we went from what in size from 20 something to 12 or 15 yeah it was just kind of crazy uh well there's no question but uh senator luger who i got to know a little bit was all good for every every position he ever had and uh, much missed do you remember first meeting people like, and these folks have come on the podcast too, Jim Morris oh, sure. and Dave Frick yeah. and Mitch Daniels yep. 
and Joe Slash mm-hmm. and others who who followed John Krause, mm-hmm. others who have followed in that 25th floor and become either you knew them before or become friends or you could see the talent that was up in the mayor's office that helped transform the city. Well, I've been fortunate to know them all and to work with them at one point in time. And uh, certainly Jim Morris is one that um, I've admired forever. And he had an awful lot to do with getting this thing. Well, I think he had an awful lot to do with the NCAA headquarters coming to town. So there's no question but what... And David Frick, um, I listened to your podcast with David Frick, and it really brought tears to my eyes because he told the the honest-to-gosh story of the stadium and why and how the whole thing came. And you hear mixed things. But um, what an important role that was, let alone what else he did. You know, I can remember that another thing that Dave Frick did that helped me. I was president of the Indianapolis Historic Preservation Commission for a number of years, which is the governmental commission that can designate historic districts and historic edifices, and which um, is responsible for naming most all the historic districts. When I was on there, the only one was Lockerbie, and so we had a number that came after. And one of the things that was happening was that they were starting to buy up all the buildings in order to tear them down on Ohio Street. Ohio Street? And because Bank One wanted to build a new tower, okay? And one of the buildings was the uh, Kittle building, which was a cast iron facade building, and it was on Pennsylvania Street, and it was about the last cast iron facade building in town. And Indiana Landmarks, which is the private organization throughout the state, was trying desperately to save it. The wrecking ball was on its way, and all the efforts to try and get um, Bank One to let us just have the thing. We said, we'll take it apart, which is frankly what... But the day before that wrecking ball arrived, we'd exhausted everything. I called Dave Frick, and I said, David, we're desperate. Can you pull any string? Do you have anything you can do to try and save this building? Landmarks, we'll take it apart, we'll store it, so it can be used again, and Dave Frick got the job done. So finish that. What happened to the facade of the building? And could we see it now if we wanted to? <laughs> yes, you could. <laughs> yeah, we, fortunately, Landmarks took it apart, saved it in the field for years, and then when the Circle Center Mall went into uh, reality, then that facade was put back together and used, and it's on the Meridian Street side. It's interesting. So you mentioned, or I should say Robert mentioned quite a few gentlemen at the time who were working hard to make our city what it is today. Yourself, who were some other women at the time who you would say also helped shape the city? Well, of course, I think everybody has respect for Judge Barker, Sarah Ann's Barker. Yvonne Chaim. Uh, who really had a tough time of it because she went into a business, the electrical contracting business, where no woman had any business being. Her husband had died quite suddenly, and she took it over. And she's just an amazing person. 
and what she's contributed and what she's accomplished is wonderful. Um, there weren't very many of us, I have to tell you, and frankly, a lot of the mentors that I've had through the years have been men. So it's been said that when people think of you as a community leader, that you're one of those people who quietly goes about your business, you see what needs to be done, and you just you go about doing the work. How, how did that play out? How did that come to be? Where did you get what I would say your philanthropic, your just that, that part of you outside of being a business owner? Well, obviously, um, the, if the whole community can be healthier, you as an individual are, and so is your business, if you want to look at it from the business perspective. But um, if you've got to give back. I mean, good heavens, how many people helped me along the way? And so you need to do the same. And I think it's important maybe to get into an area that you're passionate about. And um, I was asked to be the first this, the first woman, in a number of them, which I kind of felt maybe I was over my head, but they didn't think I was, so there you go. (laughs) I was the first woman to chair um, a United Way campaign. And uh, first president of the Economic Club, which, by the way, was where I got to know Dick Luger quite nicely. And um, so there are a number of those kinds of opportunities. Uh, SKL program, I was the first woman moderator. And my hope is, and of course, I think maybe a place where I made a difference was in the President Historic Preservation Commission, which were quite heated meetings. And I tried to be fair, but I tried to reach a conclusion and get something done and be firm about it. And I think maybe that was observed. And so that opened maybe other opportunities. Those HPC meetings can be a real rumble if you've never oh seen gosh. one. Yeah. It's, it's usually, I've had to do PR for a few clients and go before them. Susan Williams was or is. She the, is the now. She wasn't when I was there. Yeah. And uh, yeah, there no day at the beach sometimes because no. you're pushing hard for something that you think is beneficial for the city. And they're kind of pushing back, like saying, your, your definition of beneficial does not meet our ben- definition of beneficial. Yeah, yeah I know. But it's important. I I really feel that the fact that the historic districts downtown, the Old North Side, Chatham Arch, um, even um, the one on the South Side, Fletcher Place, which was slower to catch on, they've all become the nucleus for the downtown residential development. And if we hadn't saved those areas and made them desirable and made them part of what Indianapolis is all about, it would have looked like I can remember um, someone saying, if they don't quit tearing buildings down, it's going to look like this town was established in 1975. And um, so your history is part of who you are and part of what makes you unique. And so I, I really feel that the role that historic preservation has been has just been really important in the ongoing growth and success of downtown Indianapolis. Yeah. Is there a, a historic preservation 
I guess, project that didn't go the way you had hoped that you now look back on and say, that's the one I wish we could have saved? Well, you know, this was before my time. And I don't think the Preservation Commission was active then, but the one I always hear about was the English Hotel that was on the circle. That was before I ever got here, so I don't know what it's all about. But that's the one that those old-timers around town do remember. One of the the, um, buildings that we saved was the Circle Theater, and uh, they came to us wanting to tear it down. And um, Ugh, yeah, just the thought of it. Just Ugh. the thought of it. So I hauled the commission <laughs> over, <laughs> let's go look at to see what the Circle Theater is looking like these days. Well, it was all painted gray, but you could look up there and see that the details of that interior were still there. It was a movie theater then. I remember the movie that was on, they were hanging corpses on hooks in a cooler and I thought oh my god got to save this <laughs> so obviously we quickly put it on the national register we denied their request to demolish it and the person that I really um, give some sincere credit to for saving it was Zane Todd and Zane Todd was chairman of IPALCO Indianapolis Power and Light Company, which was the next-door neighbor. And um, he could see some merit in having a good neighbor there. And so they're the ones that saved it to begin with. And then Steve Hilbert. Hilbert um, came later. Came later, mm-hmm. yeah. He came after it was all restored. Yeah. Is there any trajectory right now in any city growth, in any area that you, you wish – could be thought about differently. Whether it's the Coca-Cola bottling area or some of the new buildings they're talking about tearing down near the Children's Museum or... Well, okay. Those get to be sticky wickets. (laughs) Yeah, that beautiful apartment building on Meridian Street that the Children's Museum wants to tear down. Well, I understand that it's in terrible condition on the inside. And I know that there have been efforts to try and get a developer who would take it on. Apparently, it has been allowed to get in such awful condition that the cost of renovating it is beyond anybody wants to tackle. Um, It's too bad that that was allowed to happen, but that's the way it is. And you just hate to see a building which architecturally is quite attractive, I don't know that George Washington slept there or anything of that sort, mm-hmm. but <laughs> or if Richard Luger even stopped there. <laughs> but but it's kind of sad to see those things happen. And um, but there are quite a few of them that we've saved. And if you if you uh, look at the ten most endangered list that Indiana Landmarks publishes each year. Uh, that's statewide, of course, because that's a statewide organization. But so many of them have been saved that would have just gone if it hadn't been brought to someone's attention. A lot of what Landmarks does is just buy the building and stabilize it until they can find someone who can find another use for it but still maintain the integrity of the building. So, How about the mall? What do you... What vision would you have for the Circle Center? The, the, the facade has the some beautiful spots. There. Right, it's beautiful. The facade's there. We did our bit. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. I, of course, I was thrilled when Nordstrom's came. 
And I think when they were downtown, we had people coming up here from Cincinnati and everything. But for whatever reason, it was a business decision um, that I thought was sad. And they're having trouble, obviously, keeping. I don't know. I would hope that maybe with the increased number of people that are living downtown, that maybe there would become a greater need for different kinds of shops in that mall than have been. They've been catering to maybe um, convention trade. But there are a lot of people living downtown. They need furniture. They need (laughs) hardware stores. They need all these things. I'm not sure. But yes, I hope it succeeds. So you mentioned yourself that you were the first woman in a lot of ways, first of many different responsibilities in our city. Do you think, what's your opinion, I guess? Have we come far enough? When will we stop introducing women as the first blah, blah, blah? I think we're past that to some extent. I think we're past that. I tell you, I'm just amazed at what what the – so many really great women are accomplishing. I mean, look at Elaine Beadle. I mean, my gosh. And um, there are just a number of women that are now in a leadership role. And it's interesting to me that a lot of them got that way when some of our corporations were sold. Um, and you could be sad about the corporations being sold, but out of it came some interesting things. Um, when IPL was sold, the first CEO was Ann Mertlow, a woman, for crying out loud, running a public utility. You know, that sort of thing has happened. Um, Connie Bond-Stewart is running PNC Bank. Um, it's just very refreshing, frankly, and I'm in all of these women. You're listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, the Crown Plaza at Union Station, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Do you have some favorite buildings downtown? You know, one of the things that's happened in the last decade or so is more walkability, more connectivity, those damn scooters bicycle riders, various things. So you see more of downtown than you did 30, 40 years ago. It's just easier to get around. So you can kind of take in some of these amazing buildings that, that our city has. Do you have three or four that when you drive by or, or walk by, you look up and go, that stacks up with anything I've ever seen? Well, Christ Cathedral on the circle. That's just an amazing thing, that church is still there. Um, That's certainly uh, IRT, Indiana Repertory Theater Buildings, fascinating one, and certainly uh, being kept in good condition as well. I don't know. you got to understand that I'm not all in favor of old buildings. I like new ones, too. (laughs) And so um, I can appreciate both sides of it. I am a little concerned about a lot of the apartment buildings I see going up downtown now. Just every time you turn the corner, there's another one, and they kind of all look alike, which is a concern from a person interested in design. But it is what it is. 
do you have a favorite architectural or design period in history? Something that you can see either on your travels or uh, my kids and I are big fans of the Poe television series, The Mystery, which is all art deco. It's set in the 30s. It has all that amazing art deco, you know, clothing and furniture and architecture. Yeah. And there are obviously a lot of different examples, but are there ones where you look back on and go, wow, they really looked good in that era? Well, fashion-wise, I do think the 20s was terrific. And the cars that they made back then, just gorgeous things. Um, I, I don't know. One of my problems is I like a lot of different periods. So I like to mix things, too. And so to say that there is a favorite, I have to tell you, I don't think I could live in a Victorian house. They're too dark and the rooms are too small. <laughs> But they worked for them at the time. It all is reflecting the living. I like a lot of the arts and crafts style architecture, which is kind of getting a rebirth. I am a Frank Lloyd Wright fan. There's no question about the influence that man had is just still with us. Uh, As an individual, he wasn't so nice, but... (laughs) As an architect. Geniuses usually have a bit of an edge to them. (laughs) I am paid, you? Yes, yeah. I admire his work very much. Um, I'm not so sure about Frank Garrity and all of his crazy aluminum buildings. Some of them are really well done. Uh, He's destroying the Eisenhower Memorial in uh, D.C. D.C.? Yeah. Is there, do you subscribe to the Starkitect criticism. Some of these architects make it about the promotion of them and their brand as opposed to the building or the project. Well, probably my favorite architect was Aero Saarinen. And the thing I liked about him is that you could not tell he'd done the building. He didn't have a look. And frankly, that's been my philosophy as an interior designer is not everybody is alike, and so all these things shouldn't look alike. You should get to know the individual or that company, find out who they are, and what you do is reflect who they are, not look like everybody else. And so that was one of the great gifts of... um, of uh, Saren and he did the TWA tower. He did the um, arch, of course, in St. Louis. But then he did the Concordia Lutheran College up in Fort. Well, you, you just don't look at these things and see a look, which you do with an awful lot of the architecture. You can kind of tell who did it because there's a great similarity. The point is, if you like that look, I guess that's okay. When the uh... I think it's called 360 Market Tower, the big apartment complex there on the old Market Square site. When they were deciding what to do with that space and they had kind of decided that they wanted it to be uh, what it turned out to be. At the time, Mayor Ballard says, no right angles. He wanted something that looked different. Yeah, Yeah, and it does, and I think it's very nice. Probably of the new... Architecture I see going up for apartments, it's just way ahead of everything else, in my opinion. I haven't been in it to know how it functions, 
But aesthetically, I think it's lovely. You think that it's easy to get in a rut, especially in Indiana. There's so much limestone. And if you can make a square limestone building, you can do it so much more cheaply than have a little bit of creativity and that sort of thing. Is it hard to break out of what is either cost effective or maybe expectant in the people's eyes? Well, I think an awful lot of work that is done is being done by developers. And um, they have a limited amount of money that they're going to spend. And it drives things, I think, to kind of look more alike. And in many cases, they intend to sell these things within a given period of time. So they want something that they think would be easy to sell. So I'm not sure that that always encourages creative design. I'm going to ask you, and then I'm going to turn it back over to Danielle before we do the five questions at the end. But do you remember when you walked into a meeting and you were the only woman in the meeting? And then there was another woman in the meeting. And then there were more women in the meeting. And meetings were decisions were made. You remember what that felt like to you to start to see, you know, it was kind of cool to be Sally in the room and it's just me and they had to listen to me, but you know what? Now I'm sharing this responsibility and we're all prospering because of the diversity of leadership in the room. What was that like? Because as Danielle said earlier, I mean, you're talking about the founding of Indianapolis and the people who turned it around, you know, there's a, there's just a group of people who did it, but eventually that changed. And what was it like for you when you saw it changing? Very encouraging (laughs) and a happy day. Um, One of the opportunities that I've had was to help um, establish the Central Indiana Corporate Partnership, CICP, which um, was in conjunction with Lilly Endowment. And it replaced the old Corporate Community Council, and it looked at a different way of doing economic development. And that organization now has a great number of women that are part of it, including the officers of it. Um, it, It's just so encouraging. If anything that's frustrating, it is that there aren't as many women who are Heading CEOs, because that's who you have to be to be in the Central Indiana Corporate Party. You have to be present the CEO, the one that makes the decisions. That there aren't more of them in manufacturing or in the kind of uh, organizations that are part of that organization. We always wish there more. We're all and and but we're making progress. I mean, we really are, and a lot of them are in the leadership roles. And um, the more you see of that, the more. It is, it's so encouraging. I think men have figured out that there are a few women around to know what they're doing. Yes, there are. <laughs> Across the table from me. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, Sally, I think you failed to mention the beautiful work that, you all, that your firm did with the Girl Scouts Leadership and Learning Center. Thank you. It's beautiful, the facility I get to go to work in every day, thanks to thanks to your, your work. Not uh, my work. Your, your, your firm's work, right. right. Um, but to Robert's point, it was very much designed to meet our needs and to fulfill what, what has the feel of a Girl Scout, what you would expect. 
It's in the outdoors. It has elements of our brand, but in a beautiful way. So thank you for that. My son, Eric, is the architect on the building. It's beautiful. We, we are, we're yeah. lucky to work there every single day. Thank you. Um, so talk, so if your children, so you already mentioned, you know, your husband p- played a different role for that time in life or that time in history, oh, right? My, yeah. What would your children say about you as their mother? How would they describe you and the trailblazer that you are? Well, that's scary thought. <laughs> um, I think they respect. And frankly, the thing that's encouraging is they've married women that are very smart. And um, so maybe I help set a pattern there that... Uh, we're not all beauty queens, <laughs> but maybe we have something else to contribute. So I'm very proud of my sons and of their wives and their families. I'm a fortunate lady. How many grandchildren do you have? I have five. And the oldest is um, at the University of Cincinnati in industrial design. So she may have been picked up few of these genes along the way, and her work is extraordinary. As a matter of fact, that's a pencil drawing that she did of me. That's amazing. Yeah. So talent is in the, is in the, in the gene pool. I do believe maybe some of it's hanging in there. <laughs> and so now you're, you mentioned Eric. Mm-hmm. So the, your um, role in design is still considered a family-run, family-owned? No, no, it isn't. I've been out of it for a long time. Eric is one of the partners. There are five partners in the firm. It still is a majority women-owned business, but um, they're doing beautifully. They're busy as can be, and I'm so proud of all of them, and they pretty much carried on the the attitude and the tradition that was put in place. Um, My other son, Jason, is a doctor. He's a child and adolescent psychiatrist, and he's making a huge difference in the world, too. So now now that you You've retired, and you're still spending your time supporting the community. What's your favorite way? What, what do you like to? How do you spend your energies now? My energies now. <laughs> well, <clears throat> I have three things I'm working on. <laughs> one is Indiana Landmarks. We're wanting to publish a new book, kind of a coffee table book, that shows what all landmarks has had a role in and how it's made a difference. So they're pretty much before and after illustrations of things they've done to reconnect us with our heritage, establishing communities, as I've talked about a little bit before. And then, of course, there are the individual buildings. And I don't think they toot their horn like they should, and so this may be a way of doing that. I think people would enjoy it. So that's one thing. The other, Another thing is I've been trying to get a gateway design for my old neighborhood, which is um, Millersville. You know, that's the town of Millersville is over there. And um, the gateway design is at the exit of 465 North and 56th Street. And right now when you arrive there, all you see are weeds and trash. And it's like nobody cares. Well, we care. And so we have a design in place that... Uh, features primarily the city of Lawrence because that's where the, their main exit should be. And I think we're going to get it done. I'm so happy. I bet you will. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other thing I'm working on is in my old neighborhood of Brendanwood, which is a historic neighborhood. 
we've established a historic district foundation. And so we're in the process of saving the things that are significant to its history. And they've kind of fallen maybe behind in what they should be doing maintenance-wise. So that's what I'm doing. I didn't think you would have slowed down. So it sounds like you're pretty busy. That's great. Thank you for telling us all your stories. Well, thank you for being interested. <laughs> Absolutely. And Robert? Well, is there a is there a particular, I mean, the, the show's called Leaders and Legends because those are the folks that we want to talk to and chronicle what they've done. And we've been very lucky, lucky because uh, the folks who have said yes have really enlightened. I get so many messages saying, I never knew that, or I, I didn't know that person. I mean, it's one of the reasons that I really wanted to do the podcast with former deputy mayor for Bill Hudnut, uh, David Frick. Mm-hmm. Like you do understand this is the guy who brought the Colts to Indianapolis. That's- and he's the guy who called the Simons to say, you got to buy the Pacers or they're leaving. That's right. Is there a particular, uh, and I can't wait to talk to judge, uh, Barker, who's agreed to come on on December fifth, I believe, and I'm going to be pretty nervous because you know she's fun. She's a formidable figure, to say the least. But is there a particular Hoosier leader or legend you have enjoyed interacting with over the years, or particularly admire for particular for a particular reason? Well, I guess it would be Jim Morris. Um, I'm not a close friend, but we've known each other through the years, and I so admire everything that he's done and his manner in doing it. I think he's made a huge difference in this city. We recorded a podcast with former Governor Daniels, and it was posted several weeks ago, and I specifically asked him about Jim Morris, and and the governor said that Jim is the most important person in the history of modern Indianapolis not to hold office. It may be true. Yeah. I don't think people understand the kind of behind the scenes touch that he has in getting things done. Yeah. Of course, Mitch Daniels is a favorite of mine, too. We uh, uh, shared um, board membership on IPL, sat next to each other for about 12 years or so, and admire everything Mitch has done. I have a granddaughter at Purdue now, and she's just gun ho <laughs> <laughs> But Purdue's been a client of mine for over 50 years, too. They were a firm that I started the business with, and they renewed that contract every year for over 50 years. So Purdue was near and dear to me, although I went to IU. <laughs> They said they overlooked that. <laughs> <laughs> did you did you ever do any work for IU? Yes, mm-hmm, I have. So did you, this is an important historical question. You know what's coming, Spangle? Mm-hmm. What's coming? Did you design the chair that Bobby Knight threw across mm-hmm. oh. the... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't even a well-designed chair. Was <laughs> I guess it was easy to throw. That it was, was easy to throw, matter. that's right. No, I've had uh, the fortune of doing the president's residence and and, uh, work in the Kelly School of Business and in the union building. A lot of it was back where I'm sure they've redone it now, but yeah. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies. 
and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, the Crown Plaza at Union Station, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. We have come to the five questions oh, segment. Nobody told me. <laughs> well, we only really told Governor Daniels. Well, and Governor Holcomb. Oh, they okay. got him ahead of time. All but, right. you know, okay. that's that, that's their role is to, uh, we didn't want them to be unprepared. But we asked the same five questions of everybody. Okay. And so, Danielle? And to be honest, they're not scary. Okay. Okay. <laughs> what was your first job? My first job? was in a florist shop and I it was at Christmas time and I was asked to put bows on the poinsettia plants and it was a brother and sister that owned the shop and one of them would come through and say that's too skimpy a bow and the other one would come by and say you've got too much ribbon in that bow and I think I mouthed off and got fired (laughs) All right. What was your first concert? First concert? Good heavens. Well, when I was at IU, let's see if this helps any at all. When I was at IU, um, if you were volunteering as a uh, usher, and you had to wear the black skirt and white blouse, uh, you could go to all the concerts. So frankly, I think maybe those were the first ones. Okay. Yeah. If you could suggest any book, what book would that be for someone else to read? Interesting. I read a lot of McCullum's books. As a matter of fact, I just finished one. Oh, David McCullum, the historian. David McCullum, yes. Um, and the, I haven't read one yet that I didn't enjoy. I, I particularly enjoyed the one on Truman, who was an interesting character. You know, I remember him when he was president and and how he was kind of scoffed at and whatnot. But in retrospect, probably one of the best ones we ever had. All right. Yeah. Well, this question might tie in a little bit then. If you could witness any event in history... Be there as it happens in person. What event would you choose? I guess it would have been nice to be there when they finally voted the right for women to vote. With some handout from, the guy from Tennessee, I think, was the last one to vote. And I think his mother sort of set him straight. (laughs) You'd like to see that happen. I'd like to what see she might happen. have said to him. I would him. like to see what she said to him. <laughs> and that's been a very popular answer. Yeah. Yeah. And as we're coming up on the 100th anniversary. Anniversary. The 19th that's right. So if you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record just to talk, who would you choose? Oh, my gosh. Somebody that's living, you're having mind. Okay. <laughs> well, I think certainly Jim Morris would be one, and Mitch might be another. Um, and Ballard would be fun to, because he's such an interesting person. 
We might have to do a reunion of podcast guests so Sally yeah. can have dinner with those three. Yeah. That's true. And Mark Miles and Alice. Mark Miles, yeah. But if you widened your, your, your gaze a little bit, anyone in the world living today? Boy, I can think of some I wouldn't want to. They might be fun, <laughs> those. Oh. Um. I don't think you could make it through dinner or don't <laughs> think you could keep your dinner. <laughs> Both. <laughs> well, let's see. Why near who? Oh my gosh. Well, I think maybe Colin Powell might be an interesting person to talk to. He was in an interesting spot at the time. I've always admired him. In the podcast that we did with uh, Sammy Davis, he says he knew him, knows him well from their service in Vietnam service. together. Yeah. Uh, before we wind up. Thank you, Danielle, for doing the five questions. I want to ask you about one other thing, and then we'll we'll end the podcast. What were your thoughts as you watched Notre Dame burn? Oh, my gosh. Well, horrified, I'm sure, like everyone was, you know. And it seemed like it took them so long to get people there to help put the fire out. At least, you know, I'm just watching it on television, so that's how much you know. Um, it looked to me like it wasn't going to be as bad as everybody thought it was. It looked to me like the roof was what really went, but that the stone structure was pretty much going to stay in place. I don't know if you've seen any of the suggestions of what to do with it. (laughs) Some of them are just ridiculous. I think they probably ought to put it back the way it was, but do it with better materials that would not be subject. It's I, I read that one of the reasons that the fire was so hard to put out was because of the architectural design of the building itself hundreds of years ago to keep water away from flooding, flooding. inside the church. So when they had to spray all that water on it, <laughs> these medievalists got it right. Yeah, that's right. They probably did. But um, I'm sure there's a better way to do it now. It's a magnificent structure, and what a tragedy it would be to lose something like that. But I think they did; they lucked out. Yeah. It could have been worse, it for could sure, have been much worse. as awful as it is. Yeah. Sally Rowland, thank you very much for joining us on Leaders and Legends. It's been an honor to talk to you. You're very kind to let us in your home, and, and I wasn't fabricating anything when I mentioned all the people who wanted me to tell you hello, and that's the esteem you're held by so many folks who've made a difference in this city and state because they acknowledge the difference you've made in this city and state. And thank you. Well, thank you. I'm humbled to be included in the group. I really am. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Strategies.com.